Welcome to the JFI's Weekly Choosing Up podcast with author and therapist, Ilana Kendall, and me, your host, Ellie Bass. Each week, we explore how to get into a Choosing Up headspace using insights from my book of the same name, as well as Jewish wisdom, psychology, and more. Join us now for this week's episode. Are you ready to choose up? Okay, great. Hey, good morning, good morning. Hey. <laughs> All right, Alana, what should we be thinking about today? What should we open with? I think you mentioned to me something about we're uh, looking at the Omer right now. So maybe you can tell us a bit, what is that and, and how should we be using that? Sure, yeah, let's start off by talking about the Omer and I, I think it's a beautiful connection to something that has been on my mind. I. I see it with clients, I see it in my family, which is how are we transitioning right now? And we're transitioning between a lot of things and, and how are we going to carry over from where we've been to where we are and there where we're going. So let's start with your first question. So Omer, we're in a period of time which we call the counting of the Omer, Sfirsa Omer. And really the reason it's called that is that we brought in the times of the temple an Omer offering, a korban, which we poorly translate as sacrifice. And we've spoken about this, that the, the Hebrew word for sacrifice, as we know, the Hebrew language is always going to tell us something deep and, and, and the, really the core meaning of something, that the Hebrew word for sacrifice, korban, is the language of lehakriv, to come close. So we would come close to God on the second day of Pesach with this Omer offering. And we count the days from when we brought that Omer offering to Shavuot, to the, the festival which marks the receiving of the Torah. And so there are many different explanations of this counting and why do we count up and not down and many questions that arise from it. I think the, the thing that I want to emphasize to give us a framework as we're thinking really about transitions is that we would bring a korban, we would come close in this way at each festival, and that there's a significance when we think about counting from the Omer towards Shavuot. So the Omer offering was made of barley. So you know nowadays barley is probably, you know, like everybody has their, their wheat berry and barley salad, and it's very, you know, fancy and healthy. And when, when we think about where this came from, Barley was essentially animal feed. And so if we want to get a message about what we're counting from and look at what we're counting towards, we need to ask what korban was brought at Pesach, uh, sorry, at, at Shavuot. If, if at Pesach we brought the Omer, which was barley, at Shavuot we bring the first fruits and we bring loaves of bread. And there's, there's a deep personal significance for us here, and this isn't just about food. But really, if we think about it, barley representing animal feed also represents in us the animal self, this more basic primal self, which isn't good or bad. It is. We all come into the world, you know, I have a young baby and, and the infant lives in this space, which is it's all about me. And, and in a baby, we find that quite delightful. In a 35-year-old, it's quite repugnant. And the problem there is that the work has not been done to take that animal self, which is the basis of being a human being, and harness it and elevate it. And this is really the process that we are engaged in, which is moving from the consciousness of barley, which is that Omer offering, that animalistic self, to the consciousness of bread, which will ultimately be at Shavuot. And anyone who has made bread knows that it is a multi-step process. It takes you know, following the instructions. So anyone here who likes to cook and be creative knows that when it comes to baking, you can be creative to a degree, but you know, deciding to just sprinkle in a bit of yeast this much and that much each time is going to very much alter the result, meaning that there is a science to it. And it requires wisdom and it requires discipline and it requires process. And that's, you know, we're, we are making bread using flour that has already been processed. If you can imagine from fields to table, all of the many steps. So that's one key transition that we are engaged in and that we engage in every year. This, this work from moving from the consciousness of barley to the consciousness of bread. And traditionally is a time of character refinement, 
we have teachings that tell us that there are different energies that, that are focused on each week and each day has a different charge to it, therefore a different opportunity. I personally have been thinking a lot about what transitions mean for us also right now. And I, I think that the Omer has some wisdom for us there. So, so can I kind of take you on that riff with me for a little bit here? So transitions for most people are difficult. And this is, this is how we typically are wired, right? So the first time that a kid is dropped off at daycare or at school, they maybe cry. There are some people who do better with transitions. There are some people who struggle more. All of us in some way need to navigate transitions in life. If, if, if only so much as you know, from, from winter to spring, from school to work, all our lives are full of transitions. Now, one of the, the researchers who worked with children, Winnicott, talks about the transitional object. So maybe you or your child had, you know, that favorite stuffy, that blankie, that teddy bear. And we talk about that as a transitional object. And the function of the transitional object is to hold the experience of mothering for the child when away from the mother or away from the caregiver. So that initially the child is in constant contact with the mother and actually thinks that they are one with the mother. I express a need and my need is fulfilled. Because there is some distance, there is an incredible loss because I'm actually, the, the me and the mother are two separate beings and therefore not every one of my whims and wishes is instantly fulfilled. And this produces anxiety, this is a baby crying, and this is developmentally appropriate. I think it's interesting for us to think about ourselves when we are maybe kind of tethered to certain experiences in our life where we think, if I do X, then Y will happen. If I you know, work hard, then I will get money. If I you know, want to go outside, I can. And when there's that loss of control, then it makes sense that like the infant, there is going to be anxiety. There is going to be a feeling of powerlessness, maybe of, of grief. We might see tantruming. And whereas in a young child, we see tantruming, you know, kicking and screaming on the floor, tears streaming down their face. In adults, tantruming can happen in all sorts of different Okay, so now I was muted too. Can you hear me again? Yeah, Ellie? Okay, awesome. So tantruming happens in all different ways. And if, you know, as we're listening, we can all think about how do we tantrum? How do we kind of protest behaviorally? Okay, okay. I'm going to get off. Can you, you guys can still hear me, right? Yeah? Yeah, I'm, hearing some I'm just feedback. mute. Somebody wasn't muted, so I just muted them. We're good. Sorry, sorry, Elena. Okay, go awesome. Now that it's all, all good, all good. We know in choosing up every moment is always ripe with opportunities for looking for growth, for looking for God, for looking for meaning, right? Even in our, in, in our tech adventures. So we will tantrum as adults in our own way. So I want to bring us back to Winnicott and, and the transitional object. Winnicott says that if the child has a transitional object, that that object will serve as that sort of almost like a prosthetic for the mother and that the child uses that object actually to fantasize about the mother and to maintain that connection and therefore be able to go more and more out into the world without needing the mother, without needing the caregiver, but carrying that feeling of being cared for out into the world. And ultimately the goal is that we no longer need that that physical object, but rather that we take that feeling with us and therefore are able to become more and more independent, knowing that we are bringing that sense of being cared for with us. So as adults, hopefully we are not carrying teddy bears with us to work, but we are constantly involved in transitions. So how do we navigate this? And this is, this is where I think the Omer and counting is particularly important for us this year. And I, I wanna suggest as follows. We don't just have transitional objects, we have transitional 
experiences. And so Winnicott talks about this, you know, it might not be teddy bear, maybe it's a song that, that we sing every night to the child. Maybe then it's a song that they can sing for themselves. And I want to say that right now, in a time when the world is feeling upside down, and I want to emphasize that it's feeling upside down, because it's actually not. You know, the sun is rising, the sun is setting. Right? We, we had a snow flurry uh, in the middle of April here in Toronto. We always have one in, in April in Toronto, and we always say, I can't believe it's still snowing, it's the middle of April. Right? There are ways in which reality is very much in Seder, in order. And yet there's the feeling that the world is upside down. And therefore, it is so important for us to feel like we have something to carry us through this transition. And if we're not going to be grabbing teddy bears, and we're not necessarily singing bedtime songs, I want to suggest that we are at an important time to be tapping into transitional actions to find ways, rituals, practices that will be those markers that will feel like, oh, okay, yeah, this is creating some quote unquote normalcy. This is anchoring me to that place of connection and of security. So again, if the transitional object is going to evoke that feeling of being loved and cared for by the mother, then if we look at the counting of the Omer, we begin on the second day of Pesach, on the second day of Passover. Passover is the formative experience that we have as a nation. And we form as a nation into a people who have not only a God consciousness, but a God relationship. So think about those transitional objects. We have those transitional objects so that we can carry that sense with us out into the world. I think in general, and most importantly, in specificity this year, when we are needing to have, again, actions that help us feel connected, counting Sphira beginning on the second day of Pesach, when we are in that heightened place of connection to God, and then continuing that action going forward, is giving us a model. I think Chazal are giving us a model of how do you transition from one place to another? Well, you find an action that is going to be consistent, and you do it. And it's not about big fanfare, but it's about consistency and it's about building, if you would, behavioral grooves and, and those becoming transitional actions. So if it's not counting Sphera, is it, you know, having two minutes every morning where you're pausing and checking in with the breath? We've talked about practices building gratitude. We've, you know, with my clients, one of the things that we are talking about is what did you used to do? What helped you kind of feel like your world was a little bit organized? And how can we build some of that into your day-to-day -day routine? And I'm not talking about trying to recreate what was before, but I'm talking about building small but consistent actions that help us transition because I think we're, we're not just transitioning from Pesach to Shavuot, we're transitioning from my, my sense of that initial boom of, of COVID, uh, certainly in North America around five weeks ago where there was a surge of adrenaline for a lot of us, there was the belief that this was sort of going to be somewhat short-lived and now we're moving into the next stage and for a lot of us, we're tired. Uh, that, that will happen when you're moving through crisis and the adrenaline drains. And how are we gonna kind of keep ourselves going and moving forward? So, so transitional actions, I believe are really key right now. And, and they, they shouldn't be big, right? They should be small and consistent. So I wanted to ask you, cause I know a lot of the time, especially when you're already feeling like your life looks like Groundhog Day, right? Which a lot of us do feel right now. Um, yeah. You know, what can, like, what can consistency look like without it feeling like Groundhog Day? Like, is there a way to have consistency, but it not feel like drudgery? Um, cause I think that's, you know, I know for me, that's one of the things I resist is like, oh my gosh, I have to do the same thing again today. Like, um, what are some of the options? Like, what are some of the things that you mean when you say consistency that doesn't necessarily mean your day has to look exactly the same every day? 
Yeah, so, so one of the things is that we all need differing levels of routine and structure, but we all need some. And so one of the things, you know, even the way that I work with clients, let, let's say that there are different approaches I use, depending on clients presenting um, struggles, what they're looking for support around, and also what they're bringing to the table in terms of their own emotional and psychological makeup. So my sessions will all be always be a certain amount of time and sessions will always you know, kind of begin and end with maybe a check-in and a wrap up but there will be some clients where the way that we're working is very highly structured and we will set an agenda and if we deviate from the agenda i will elicit uh, agreement and commitment at the beginning of our work together to say like listen if we get off track like i'm going to pull us back and it might feel like i'm invalidating you but let me pull us back here whereas some clients it is very free-flowing and that is the nature of our work and that is actually what is needed for them in therapy so too for each of us in structuring our days you know you you know if you are someone who just basically needs to start off your day in a certain way, maybe make sure you get lunch in there somewhere between 12 and 2 and, you know, wrap up somewhere in the evening in the same way. Or if you are someone who is going to need to have your schedule typed out for the day. So, so structure, non-negotiable. Details, huge, huge flexibility. So when we're talking about building habits and building these actions, we, we are looking at all of us having some uh, benchmarks throughout our day and the, the, the halacha will really give us some of the basic frameworks. Uh, and and if, we, if we want to even think about a basic practice, we said that, that Pesach is not just God consciousness, but God relationship. So God relationship is formed through prayer. And we, we as, as Jews, certainly, Men are obligated to pray three times a day, basic that we check in once, once a day. And, and in that basic check-in that we give praise, thanks, and requests. So there are all different ways that we can structure these habits, and we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There, there is a framework already there for us. I think the piece about it not feeling like Groundhog Day, to your point, is that we are built to learn. But we are built to learn when we are feeling safe and connected. So if you are someone who is finding yourself in flight or, or fight right now, if, if you are feeling in just kind of total cognitive overdrive, then you might actually need things to feel a bit Groundhog Day-ish right now. You might not be looking for novelty. You might need that security of knowing kind of what things are going to feel like. If you are feeling like, unmotivated, which I think is that Groundhog Day phenomenon a bit, like been there, done that, then, then you know, what, what comes to mind for me is a story actually um, of one of the Hasidic Rebbe's. And it's, it's told about him at, at Purim time that, you know, there's a, a tradition to do a Purim spiel, which is a sort of parody play. And his chassidim, his followers, come to him and ask him, you know, Rebbe, do we have your permission to, to do a spiel of you? And if you've ever, Ellie, I don't know if anyone has ever done an impression of you, but you know, if someone has ever done an impression of you. My kids yeah. just did recently. <laughs> Oh, did they? Okay, so is it not amazing, like totally uncanny to see what your mannerisms are and how somebody else can capture, you know, the way like I for sure, and I see with Zoom now, I am so aware of how much I use my hands. I mean, I knew before, I knew before. I always used to say that manicures should be a business write-off for me with how much I use my hands between therapy and everything, right? But we, we have our mannerisms picked up upon in this way. So the Rebbe gives his chassidim permission. And it comes to Purim time, and they're, they're about to do this spiel, and he's sitting there, and his chassidim, remember, have his permission, and they get up on stage to do this parody to make the Rebbe laugh, and they start to, to, one of the chassidim starts to do his impression of the Rebbe, and the Rebbe is watching, and he begins to cry. And the chassid stops in the middle of his performance, and he, he says, Rebbe, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry, did I do the wrong thing? And he says, no, watching you, I realized that you 
are doing a better impression of me than I do of myself. And what I realize is that perhaps I am just doing an impression of myself each day. And that I shouldn't be the same person today that I was yesterday. I was crying not because you offended me. I was crying because it helped me to see that I have become rote in my actions. And so it might feel like we're doing the same thing. The challenge for us is to find newness within whatever we're doing. So however we're showing up each day, to push ourselves, how can I be a little bit better today? And, and emphasis on a little bit, right? So always a big public service announcement, spiritual change happens with tiny tweaks. Emotional growth happens, slight, slight behavioral nudges. We're not looking for big actions. Those typically actually uh, end up collapsing. But what we're doing each day to be challenging ourselves, you know, if you are doing a gratitude list, we should not be seeing the same thing yesterday that, that is yesterday and today. And that's not that you're not still grateful, but to be looking for the novelty, to be helping prime our brains to be finding new and exciting things within what might look the same. Because when you become a detective for what is new, you will discover it. It's a, it's a skill. It's a muscle that we build. I love that too, because it allows people to find authenticity within a structure. And I think a yeah. lot of the time when we think of authenticity um, or a loss of authenticity, we think, oh, I have to do, I have to say what this thing is telling me to say. I have to do what this thing is telling me to do. I have to wear mm -hmm. what this thing is telling me to wear. And what feels lost, if you're in that thinking, is your own authenticity, rather than seeing it as, okay, this is the road, um, you know, and there are laws to driving, but I get to choose my car and I choose what music I'm playing and I choose where I'm going and I choose like what route I'm going to take, like where within the structure is the creativity and the authenticity. And I think that's a lot of the time where, again, then it starts to feel like Groundhog Day rather than I'm actually authentically living my own life. So I love that idea of, um, you know, searching for where's the room and how does that room work within the structure? Um, mm -hmm. In fact, it's interesting because I used to say, like people would say to me, I, when I did ballet, right, you're doing, and, and anyone who's done dance, like, you know this, Elena, like everything you're learning is structure. You're doing 30 plies, you're doing 20 releves, you're doing 30 poites. You're just learning these very structured rules of the dance. Um, but then when you actually get a chance to dance, it doesn't feel like rules, it feels like freedom but the rules allowed me to have that experience of freedom. Um, you know, so I think that's the, the interesting thing about what you're saying is if we set structure, it can actually allow us to have a sense of authenticity and freedom, which seems like an, uh, a paradoxical idea. I think the, the, the structure is going to give us security where we can then explore. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Okay, maybe should we open up for questions just for a minute? What do you think? Should we just see if, sure, if there are questions and go, go on? Maybe there are a couple more ideas we wanted to explore. Okay, so let's see if there's a question from anybody. You can use the chat for a question. You can raise your hand. Um, there's a couple people on video, so if you want to literally raise your hand, you can do that. And if there's no questions, we're going to kind of keep going. And you can let us know. Any questions, comments, concerns, feedback? Everybody's good. Everybody's just soaking it in. Okay, awesome. All right. Uh, Alana, where should we go from here? Well, you know, I told you about transitional objects. So I'm going to use transitional objects to transition us, okay? <laughs> so I had a transitional object when I was growing up, when I was a little girl. I had this T-shirt. I used to call it my crayon T-shirt because it had little crayons on it. And I liked the texture of it. I remember holding onto it and I lost my crayon t-shirt. I remember we left it on an airplane and now, you know, now as an adult, I can imagine my poor parents calling the airline, trying to get this crayon t-shirt back. We never found it. And I, you know, that, that was the end of the crayon t-shirt. And even when I talk about it now, 
So I, I'm doing okay. And I can touch a little bit of that little girl piece inside of me that, that experienced that loss. And if we're talking about transitions, I, I think it's important for us to talk about grief. And as it is really being experienced throughout the world right now, and I was listening to an interview and they, they described the world, they, it was said that we are all experiencing grief right now. We are all experiencing the loss of the pre-COVID world. And what I want to say is that yes and no. And let me start with the no and then we'll move to the yes. The no is that we are not all anything. And I see this a lot right now in what I'm reading and how people are talking. And I notice it in my own language is, is using this phrase, we are all. And, and I want to acknowledge that certainly we are all experiencing a lot of things together. And there is a sense of a, a group and a global experience that is shared. However, when we use phrases like we are all, that's the assumption that there is a we that is all experiencing the same thing. And one thing that is important to note is that we are all still individuals, meaning there, there's still a variety of ways to be experiencing what is happening at a global and a personal level. And that fits actually very much with talking about grief because one of the things that we know and anyone who has experienced loss and and really all of us have experienced different losses in our life knows that there is no one way to grieve and that grief is very individualized grief has no timeline as much as we all have our own fingerprints, we all have our own unique experience of grief and its process. If we want to think about how maybe to check in with ourselves to understand, are we grieving? What, what's happening right now? Am I, am I grieving the pre-COVID world? Maybe we are grieving a loss of a loved one. Or, or a certain sense of order. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross famously formulated five stages of grief. And I think they can be very helpful for us, but one of the criticisms of how they are used is that people kind of want to take these five stages and think of them as linear, think of them as a way to kind of tuck everything into a box, got it done, been there, moving on. When I work with clients and grief comes up, and often grief comes up around issues other than loss of a loved one, so it might be grieving a, a hoped-for life. You know, if someone has experienced trauma, often we grieve the story of how I thought my life was going to go. If, if the trauma is through a loved one, through, through unfortunately abuse or assault, then, then we are grieving that role of that person in my life. And what I'll do is I'll pull out a, a visual that I have as the five stages of grief on it. And we'll, we'll talk through like, where do you think you're at on any given day? And, and how are you moving through these stages? And it might be helpful for us to just talk through them now that I've talked about them to help us understand maybe where we might be at right now, particularly in terms of grieving the what we might want to call the pre-COVID world. And, and yeah, and I'll, I'll take us through and then, and then we'll kind of see how that can point us forward. So the, the, the first stage that she identified is denial. And so you know, that might look like, you know, uh, Corona's not really gonna, gonna leave China. Um, or, you know, that happens to, to other people or over there. It can't really get that bad here. I know for myself that Thursday, I guess it's about five weeks ago, when there were a flurry of closures, I felt like I was watching a movie. You know, it was very surreal. And, and certainly for me, there was an element of denial. Like, this, okay, is this really happening? Then we move, to her next stage is anger. And anger might look like, you know, well, how can, how can this be going on? How can everything be shutting down? How, how can the government not be doing this or... or be doing this and, and really pushing back. The next stage is sadness or depression. And that is the, the place where we usually realize that we're in grief. And that looks like, I, I can't believe this is still here. 
I can't believe this person is sick. I can't believe I, I feel so powerless. We move from there to bargaining and that can look like, you know, well, like if I wear a mask, then, then, then I'm okay. Right. Or if we social distance, we can, we can lock this thing down. Right. Like we're, we're going to put this one forward and then, and then COVID will, will move back. We'll, we'll be able to be in this dance together. And the last stage, and again, this is not linear, but the last stage that she, she, uh, formulated was acceptance. And that is, okay, here we are. How are we going to move forward? Now, Kubler-Ross formulated those five, five steps. Now, David Kessler, a researcher who actually worked with her in her life, she has since passed away, I think, in the early 2000s. He, actually on the heels of his own tragic loss of a son, added a sixth stage. And that was a stage called meaning. And he talked actually about how his research into uh, Viktor Frankl's work helped him to add this stage. And given that for the, me, the essence of the choosing up work, the essence of the choosing up framework is to say, wherever we are, the most important choice is who we become in this moment. And, and who we become is how do I choose to grow? How do I find God? How do I generate meaning? This step and this addition to the model, I think is so important if we are going to take this from a psychological model to a spiritual path, which is to say, yes, we check in with our emotional temperature. Now, once I understand where I'm at, how do I want to move forward? How do I want to continue to grow and, and find meaning even if I'm kind of sometimes bargaining and sometimes angry and sometimes sad, ah, there's this option of meaning making. And then, and then the stages of grief actually, I think can become a doorway to the next stage, to the transitioning beyond maybe feeling stuck and, and finding a way forward. Yeah, I think it's, it's a beautiful way to go through those stages and also I think to recognize you know I definitely see with my kids they're in different stages of feeling like oh I'm, maybe I'm not going to see my friends again this year you know maybe school's over and I think different people are dealing with serious loss or again like without doing comparative suffering I think you know the loss of jobs the loss of um, you know, actual family members. So I think there are different levels of different experiences that people are having. And I, and I also am really happy that you said that not everybody is having the same experience. Yeah, you know, one of the things Kessler points out when he talks about the meaning making is that it's not about saying the loss itself is good. And we're not saying, I'm so grateful that this trauma happened. It's what happens after that? Who do I become in the wake of that? And, and that's where, where the choice really lies. It doesn't mean it's, it's easy. And, and so when I talk about meaning making, I don't want it to come across as sort of Pollyanna-ish, you know, that, and everything has a silver lining. That, that is not what we're saying. What we're saying is that we're not passive victims here in how we're going to tell this story, which is this theme that we, we come back to, and that grief can be a process that births something, which makes sense, right? Death is part of, of the life cycle and that there is also birth and rebirth and being engaged in that work can, can be ultimately redemptive. And we've just come out of the holiday of our redemption. So, so looking for, for redemptive even moments can be how we find our way up and out. I love it. And I love that we come out of, um, out of Pesach and then, you know, we were talking about this idea of like, like, you know, we come right out of like no chametz and then we're supposed to make this like, you know, very um, unique kind of hala um, that has this almost um, hopeful quality to it. Do you want to kind of tell everybody what that is? Yeah. So, so I'm making, I was telling Ellie that 
earlier this morning I was braiding my challah. Uh, so schlissel challah, so schlissel in Yiddish is, uh, is a key. Uh, not, so schlissel, you know, Yiddish is a wonderful language for, for its sounds, for its onomatopoeia. I know my booby always used to try to teach me little bits of Yiddish. She would say, abyssal and abyssal macht a fill a schissel. A little and a little makes a full bowl. So, so I, have, I had a schissel in my schissel and there was abyssal. <laughs> okay, so uh, the, the schlissel challah is challah that we have the tradition. It's not a lach, it's a minhag. It's a custom to make challah for the first Shabbos after Pesach. And many people make challah actually in the shape of a key. I do not. I actually take a house key, I wrap it in foil so that it's clean, and I stick it in my challah dough. And there are different reasons that are given for this minhag, given for this tradition. One, the, the main reason that I have learned is that this is the Shabbos when we announce the month of Iyar, the month that follows Nisan, when we had Pesach, and the Torah tells us that in the month of Iyar, the man fell, that that was when the manna came. And the manna was a very specific experience that we had in the Midbar. Here we were in the wilderness. We were feeling in many ways helpless. We had gone through this incredible Exodus experience. And yet what it was to be wandering in the wilderness was probably in many ways an experience that we can relate to now. This kind of, I know I'm on a journey. There's a piece of me that, that is very much connected and, and has the clarity that there is a way forward. And yet I really don't have my bearings and, and not sort of sure of the parameters of reality or of this experience. And the Almighty came to guide us in a very, very uh, visceral way. And one of the ways that God interacted with us was by providing our food on a daily basis, providing man. And you think about panic buying. I don't know if you've been into stores. I have been really trying very hard to do everything online, but I actually I had to go to, to get a medication. I had to go to the pharmacy. And last week I, I stood in line. So they have the social distancing lineup. I, this to me, on the one hand, I was very glad, right? It, we, we want this order. We want everybody doing their part. And on the one hand, I could feel very proud as a, to see this happening. And everybody was very considerate. On the other hand, this was evocative of, you know, like Soviet Russia, right? People lining up to, to get basic provisions and then to go into the stores and see shelves half empty. And you know, I think, again, we talk about individual experiences, so I'll share for me to see those shelves half empty, even though I intellectually could understand, you know, there's not such a big supply chain issue, those shelves will be restocked. To be living in a world where things have that appearance, some part of my nervous system certainly got tripped up. And, and that feeling of, of panic, and it's not so different from the feeling that the people had in the Midbar, in the wilderness, which is, you know, maybe there won't be enough for tomorrow. And God knew that that was going to be our default, that we were going to be wired in such a way that our default was going to be to go into panic. And so we get instructions with the man. The instructions are you can only gather enough for one day. And if we tried to take more, it would rot. There's one exception. Friday, we would gather a double portion. That's why we have two chalas, the Lechem Mishnah on Friday night because we would take a double portion, no man would fall on, on, on Shabbos day. So the message of collecting just enough for one day is a message really of trust. That I'm only going to take exactly what I need for now, because I am going to trust that tomorrow I will get exactly what I will need for tomorrow. And the next day I will get exactly what I need for that next day. And it's not only that, it's living in the consciousness that I am in a personal relationship with the Almighty who is personally fulfilling my needs. So why do we make the Shlissel Chala? So we make this Chala, one, to, as, as, as a practice to remind us of this man. And the key is that the key to our Parnasa, the key to our livelihood, the key to our material needs being fulfilled really lie in the hands of God. And so we make this challah, we move from this 
this matzah, this lechem oni, this, this bread that was the bread of our affliction, the bread over which we tell the story of our redemption. And then we move right back into the world of leavened bread and, and of creating and creating in partnership with God. And, and really that practice is to remind us that ultimately that key lies in God's hands. And again, at a time like this, when there is this tension between how much do I stock up on and how much do I trust? So I'm not saying, you know, just, just buy enough for today. And, you know, we definitely are very, very excited that we got some toilet paper delivered yesterday. Like that was, that was the big excitement in the Kendall household. Our Amazon toilet paper order came uh, and, and, and yet, how do we hold this consciousness with us that ultimately everything is coming from God? And so we know that as Jews, we are given actions. We move into the world of action because this is not just a cognitive process. It's a lived process. It is the living Torah. And so we have this minute, we have this tradition to bring that idea, that concept down into the physical world. So it's always an exciting thing tonight as the challah is being cut. At which slice are we going to hit the tin foil in the key? I know many people make these very beautiful challahs that are shaped like keys. And you can certainly see people post them. But in my family, it's a normal challah with a wad of uh, tin foil in the middle. I love it. Um, I want to see a picture <laughs> after you found the key. Um, the crummy key, I guess that's what it ends up being. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, just before I'm just uh, conscious of time and that we're on a Friday and, um, you know, we all have a little bit extra to do, I think, today after um, Passover. Um, you know, speaking of bringing things down into action, um, you know, based on everything that you've talked about today, let's shift it into your unique paradigm in terms of choosing up. Like, what are the things now that we can start to think about? How do we choose up this week? Okay, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so, so choosing up again, we talk about it as this moment to moment practice that it is not something that we are going to get it, lock and load it, got this under control, move forward. But this is really about bringing a framework into our lives where, where we are looking for meaning, where we are finding growth, where we are finding God, and then bringing that into the world of action to shift our thoughts, our speech, and our actions. So I, I think if, if we are going to do that this week, it is going to be a transitional practice. It is going to be taking us from Pesach and then really moving forward. And I was, I was thinking this year, I asked my family different questions at the different meals. And one of the questions I asked was, what is one of your favorite childhood Pesach memories? And I actually, I shared a different one, but it just came to me last night as I was thinking back over Pesach. And I remember one year when I was younger, my, I had a cousin, a second or third cousin who had married a woman who came from a Sephardic background. And she was joining us at our Seder and she was going to bring some of her minhagim, some of her customs to us. And one of them was that it was her family's custom during the singing of Dayenu to take green onions, so for, for my Sparty uh, brothers and sisters who are listening, maybe you do this, to take green onions and that those green onions with their, their many sort of sticks represented the whips of the Egyptians. And as we sang Dayenu, to, to whip each other with these green onions. Let, let me tell you the scene, my Polish booby, plutzing, like laughing like nothing before as we were singing Dayenu, hitting people side to side with, with the green onions. So I share this in that we were learning about some Sephardi customs this year. And my husband and I, Mark and I, were watching a video about different Sephardi customs at the Seder. And we saw one, which was that the, the families would take the Afikoman, wrap it, put it on their shoulder, and ask each other, where are you coming from? And they would answer, you know, we're, we're coming from Lebanon, we're coming from Syria. And then the next question would be, and, and where are you going? And the answer would always be, I'm going to the lands of Israel. I'm going to Eretz Yisrael. And holding that afikoman on their shoulder, they would ask those questions. And so the choosing up practice that I want to suggest for us right now is to ask ourselves, where am I coming from? What have the past five weeks, six weeks, three months, kind of however you want to create the framework of this segment of reality that we are contending with, what have those been like? Where are you coming from? And then to ask yourself, where am I going? Because we are still going. 
we are, we, are, we are moving forward as a people. We are moving towards Shavuot, to receiving the Torah, God's wisdom in this world. We are moving towards our, our fulfillment as individuals. And so if we want to use this period of time as a time that changes us, God willing, for the better as individuals, as a people, as humanity, then to make a bit of time every day to ask yourself, where am I going? Where am I going towards? And so that we don't just in some sort of vague way try to grow through this time, but that we get some clarity about, you know, I'm going towards a more patient version of myself. You know, I'm going towards a more calm version of myself. I'm going towards a version of myself who's going to stop, drop, and pray once a day, right? And, and to, to make that a question that we ask ourselves, where am I coming from and where am I, and, and, and where am I going? And I'll just, I'll leave you with, with this and then we'll, I guess, open it up for questions. The parting of the sea is hands down one of my favorite parts of the Torah and the Shvi Shal Pesach, the seventh day of Pesach is when the sea was parted. So you know, my family gets to listen to lots of my questions and ideas about this. And, and I was sharing one of the, the parts of the Torah that I have marveled at is where Moshe uh, is, is dealing with the people. So we have left Mitzrayim, we have left Egypt. We are standing at the Yamsuf, at the Sea of Reeds, Egyptians behind us, water in front of us. And we say to Moshe like, for this you brought us out? Like, it would have been better to just die in Egypt. Like, we knew what was going on there. We didn't need to come out here to deal with this. And Moshe, Moses, reassures us as a people. And then the Torah says that God says to Moshe, Matitzakalai, why are you crying out to me? So Rashi says there that Moshe has, is, is in prolonged prayer and that God says to him, now is not the time for prolonged prayer. The Jewish people are in distress, time to get moving. I saw this year a different understanding, and that is from the Ramban, Nachmanides. And he says something which I think is really important for us. He points out, based on the understanding that there are different Lashono, there are different languages used for prayer, and that Tsa'aka is a certain kind of prayer. Mati Tsa'akalai, why are you crying out to me? We cry out in prayer when we're in great distress. And the Ramban says that God is saying to him, I've already told you the plan. I've already reassured you that there is a bigger plan in place and you guys are gonna be okay. So if you didn't know what to do right now, if you came to the water and there was water and there were Egyptians and you didn't want, know what to do, you just needed to turn to me and ask and to say like, which way should I go? You don't need to cry out to me. I've already told you the bigger picture. And I think that's an important thing for us to remember that yes, there is great distress. Yes, there is in many ways for us a feeling that Egyptians are behind us and water is in front of us. And we do need to turn to God and look inside of ourselves to ask, okay, which way do I go? But that the bigger picture, the larger narrative of our people, of our soul mission to grow, to become greater people, to become more connected to God and to each other is still in place. And that our work continues to be to move out of that panic brain and more into that place of connection where we can be looking for the meaning, we can be looking for growth and we can ask ourselves then those questions, where am I coming from? Where am I going? Shabbos, questions. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much, Elena. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining after eight days of, you know, lots of excitement and matzah and lots of work to get ready for Shabbat now too. <laughs> um, does anybody have any questions, any, um, anything that you'd love to ask Elena? We have about five minutes left. So if you want to throw something in there, um, I think Charlene has her hand up. Hi, Charlene. Hi there. Um, first of all, good Shabbos to everybody. Thank you, Lana. Always inspirational. Um, you know, I think the time that um, I've been inside, uh, for the first time in my life, I've actually had a lot, a lot of time to think of things. Uh, when generally uh, in our ordinary old world, there was never really time to think and things were kind of just 
put aside um, for another day. Um, having this time has given me so a, a perspective on where I'm at and where I need to go and where I need to be. Um, and I've never looked at things that way. There's never been much planning in my life. Um, so in a way, in this crazy time, I'm, I'm thankful for the time that I've actually had to look at things more closely, to have more clarity on my life. And with more of a plan going forward. Wonderful. Thank God. So yeah, you know, we've been talking about pre-COVID and getting back to normal, but you know, I, I, I definitely think one thing is that it should not be getting back to normal, that our prayer is that we move forward and that we are changed for the better, God willing. Agreed. I, you know, I think Charlene also says something that all of us are experiencing, which is uh, when you pause in your life, in the, in the busyness of everything, you have a moment to say, is this, is this the way that I want things to be? And I think that really speaks to what you're saying, Alana, is we get to say, oh, well, where did I come from? What were things like before I started this? Where do I want to be? And now I have the time to sort of reevaluate. Is this really what I want my life to look like? I know a lot of people are thinking about work. They're thinking about friendships. They're thinking about school are things the way that I feel like they should be or could be? And if not, taking this time to say, well, how could it be different? Um, mm -hmm. To really blue sky in that way. So I love what you're saying about where did I come from and where am I going? This really is a unique time where we get to ask those questions and maybe make a different plan. Okay. A real opening. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Alana. As always, yeah. thank you everyone yeah. for joining us. Uh, Shabbat Shalom. I cannot wait to hear about your Kihala. It's very exciting. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to join our live Zoom each week, go to myjfi.com register to sign up for our Zoom session on Fridays at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We would also love to hear your choosing up stories and moments. Please send us an email and let us know more at ellie at myjfi.com. To learn more about Alana Kendall, her book and her work, go to her website, alanacandle.com. Until next week, let's find our way to choose up. <laughs>